I think I'm particularly fond of the chopped liver because it was my grandmother's recipe. And my grandmother would make it on Shabbat when we would go over to her house. And she, you know, she would make it with the onions and the, liver, the chicken liver. She would saute the liver and the onions and she would put a little bit of mayonnaise in there to stir it. And I've heard from people that you're not allowed to put mayonnaise in it. And I thought, well, I mean, that's the way my grandmother made it. So that's the way I grew up eating it. And that's what I love. And that's the way we're making it here. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear. I'm your host, Beth Schenker, and I'm happy to have you along with me on this episode. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at a wonderful deli called Mamala's, and my guest is Alan Munzer, a co-owner of the restaurant. Hi, Alan. Hello. Welcome to The Big Schmear. Thanks I'm, for having me. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I'm happy to be here at Mamala's. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Thanks. I thought maybe we would start by setting the scene for all my listeners. So if I was walking into Mamala's, I wouldn't just see a restaurant. Tell me what it looks like in here. So Mamala's Delicatessen and Restaurant, we're both. We've been open here in Cambridge for about three years. And right when you walk in the door, there's a beautiful old-fashioned bar-type soda fountain. That's kind of the first thing you say. Well, maybe the second thing you see. The first is an old-fashioned candy counter right at the front where we have violets and peanut chews and lactate pills actually and we fill it with retro items that make you feel like you know you haven't seen them in years and you're excited to see them or a lactate so you could have cream cheese and, uh, right. and a milkshake and then moving on to the bar it's old-fashioned in a way that we want to bring back a bit of nostalgia from the uh, from deli's past um, we designed it that way to make you feel like you could come in. It's so comfortable, um, but you have the full bar. To the left, as you see, there's a whole takeout counter stocked with lox and sable and sturgeon and cream cheeses. Next to that are baked goods. Uh, we make as much as we can here. We make our own bagels every day, up, chocolate babka, black and white cookies. There's an old uh, spinning case that we refurbished it looks great. Um, I've seen the cakes in there. They're amazing. five-layer chocolate cakes spinning around, New York-style cheesecake, rice pudding. There were a lot of, lot of item, classic deli items that we wanted to include when we first started here at Mamala's. And you also have a gift shop, right? We do. Just to the left of the entrance, we have a gift shop, which is my wife, Rachel's project. She always liked that idea when she was a child that restaurants used to have gift shops where you can buy tchotchkes or candy or whatnot. And uh, we had a little waiting area that didn't quite fit tables. So we had drink refrigerators there, refrigerators stocked with items to go, matzo ball soup and quarts of pickles and a freezer with knishes and blintzes and ice creams. And the gift shop has mugs mugs that we I sell that, we're, that I'm drinking <laughs> out of right now, our Mamla's mug. Socks, T-shirts, tote ba- schlep tote bags. <laughs> we have baby bibs that say schmutz on them. And How can you lose with that? I mean, really. Some food, uh, lo- food made from uh, you know local producers. Some ceramic salt cellars made by a local Jewish woman. Oh, nice! Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice mix. And there's also pickle-scented air fresheners, also. Oh my God, I miss those. <laughs> there's a little, a little, <laughs> a little something for everyone in there. Yes, there is. And it, I have to say, and I was here to be honest with my listeners. I was here a couple of months ago, earlier in the year, and. For one, it felt very comfortable when we walked in. But two, I felt like there were so many great things on the menu. I could, I would have to live in the restaurant to be able to try everything I wanted to try. Um, and then I wouldn't be able to leave the restaurant because right. I'd be so 
so big that I wouldn't fit through the door. Um, so there, it is it is hard to narrow down your uh, your choice. A lot of people that come the first time, you see their entire tables covered with food because yeah, they want to try a little bit of everything. Yeah, they we, can't decide between the chopped liver or the whitefish salad or pickles. So they just get it all. We um, we started with one side of potato latkes for the table, and we wound up with at least one more plate. Yeah, yeah. I, in, on top of everything else we I, ate. I like when that happens. Yeah, it was great. So. I don't know much about you, and um, I thought maybe it would be interesting for you to tell me about what your career path was, how you, how you got to be in this restaurant. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in Connecticut, uh, was born and raised there. I had worked in restaurants a little bit during high school as a busboy at my local Italian restaurant, and came up to go to college and was interested in getting a job up here. I talked to a friend who had a job waiting tables and said they were hiring with no experience, and that was perfect for me, because that's <laughs> the exact amount of experience I had. And I went there and learned how to wait tables, uh, was there for a while, tried a couple different restaurants, and eventually thought if I moved up to a fancier restaurant, I would make more money. That was my na- naive way of thinking of wait- waiting tables. And what I learned was that it was just because there was more fine dining, there were a lot less people. So even the, the check average was higher, but it turned out to be about the same. But what I didn't realize that I was going to learn was just this incredible amount about food and drinks and wine and service and hospitality. And I became really interested in that. So I worked my way up. I was At that restaurant, I was actually hired as a busser or in a host. And then I worked my way up to a waiter at lunch and then a waiter at dinner eventually. Mm. And then I would always bug the bartenders to ask, see what they were doing and ask what all the different obscure uh, spirits were behind the bar. And just kept asking questions and would start bartending there. Worked at a couple different nice restaurants. Kept learning all the way. Would hang out in the kitchen with the chefs and watch a lot of Food Network at the time. When really? it was just like It was just a chef and the camera pretty much, and everybody would cut an onion the same way, and I'd say, well, I guess that's how you cut an onion. And I'm not a chef, but I always have a, you know admiration for those who are. My grandparents actually had a diner when I was younger in Connecticut. They sold it before my memories uh, started, but there's photos of my sister and I sitting on the counter at their diner. and It was in your blood. It was. I think it was there. <laughs> my parents chose not to... Chose not to take over I don't even know if they were offered to take over the business but they did not go on that path but I think I say it's like uh, the restaurant business is like baldness it skips a generation so <laughs> it skipped my parents and it came to me and so I was working at restaurants all the while going to college since graduated college had met my to-be future wife in school and graduated waited tables some more bartended some more and then had to determine what I was going to do with my life and my college degree. So, uh, What was your college degree in? My college degree was in communications because I never knew what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And I wanted to pick one that uh, let me watch films and television <laughs> and work at radio stations. And it was we used to have to edit actual tape I'm aging myself. That we there did was that a, too. There was a time where you had to actually cut and paste. Yep. Um, much simpler now. And I got into... Tried doing real estate for a little while to get out of the restaurant business and try a uh-huh. quote-unquote career. And it was fine for me, but I didn't love it. And I went into a neighborhood in Boston, this beautiful neighborhood called Bay Village, and there was a quaint little coffee shop on the corner. And I happened to go list, looking at a listing of an apartment nearby. And I went into the coffee shop for lunch, and it was this 
adorable corner shop on a gas lamp lit street mm. and it was beautiful but we walked in and the place was kind of dingy to say uh, to say the least and it was so small that you couldn't turn around and walk out Ooh. you just had to be there talked to who was the owner and he said he was thinking about selling the place and I was pretending I was talking to him about a real estate client and I said I think I may have somebody who's interested I talked to my wife Rachel about it and she said she had just happened to walk by that space a few weeks earlier she knew exactly what I was talking about long story short we cut a deal with him bought his coffee shop renovated the whole place and opened a little place called Rachel's Kitchen and it was 10 feet wide you can imagine when I say tiny it's tiny it's 10 feet wide by 17 feet deep and we were open for breakfast and lunch and that was our foray into the restaurant business wow we were had a little griddle and again neither of us were chefs but we were making do with a little griddle and a little sandwich making a refrigerated case and we were open there for about two and a half years then a restaurant space opened down the street we were offered by all the neighbors suggested we should go take go take over that space because the restaurant had been there for years and Mm -hmm. it closed and then the restaurant so we went to go look at it our restaurant was 170 square feet this restaurant was 10,000 square feet oh my god (laughs) a totally different I think they overestimated what we were uh, capable of and so we talked to our friends uh, two of our friends who had worked with the restaurants and said we have this opportunity for a restaurant would you like to be business partners with us one was a chef and another was a manager Again, long story short, it didn't work out in that neighborhood. We closed the coffee shop and opened up here in Cambridge. Ah. That was a place called Hungry Mother Restaurant. We were open for seven and a half years there total. About four or five years in, we started getting the itch to open another place. We opened our uh, next place, which is called State Park, which is in the same building here as we are at Mamala's. Oh. We've had State Park open for now, that's been five years. And that's more of a bar. Hungry Mother was more of a fine dining-ish, fine dining leaning place. And then we opened State Park as a counterpart to that, which was the bar. We ended up having business partner breakup changes uh, as these things go. Closed Hungry Mother. So we had State Park. And then with our current business partners, we opened Mamala's here in its place. And then we've recently, a year and a half ago or so, Reopen a restaurant in the old Hungry Mother space. Wow. So you have three... So, no, we have three active restaurants currently. That's a lot of work. It sure is. <laughs> yeah. So kind of real estate stuff, and you have to be able to communicate. Yeah. So it sounds like you've used all those past skills, yeah. and they all came together in this great food industry. Yeah. Everything, you know, all the, all the stars aligned, and we're fortunate to have incredible business partners. There's seven of us total split between the three restaurants so we all share the responsibilities and we certainly couldn't do it all without them so yeah. I'm the one speaking today but it's really all of us that I have a role in that. have a role we're all active here every day so in fact that's what I was going to ask you there's I didn't remember the count I remember there were a number of faces and names yeah. and a lot of people that said co-owners so in order to have three restaurants going all the time what is your role in Mamala's but maybe maybe that's extended to other places just so people have a sense of what goes on behind the scenes when you sit at the table yeah absolutely everybody has their own specific role of the seven of us some of them overlap and some of them are unique to those individuals I 
am at Mamla's full time. This mm. is my home. This is where I'm stationed. When we opened Hungry Mother, I was there all the time. When we opened Next State Park, I was there all the time, and that was a bar scene. We were there till three, four in the morning, yeah. working long hours for the first couple of years. And when we opened this, we switched to the morning, early morning hours. So when I came over here, this uh, when we opened here, I came over, and this was this has been my home since we've opened. So I'm stationed here. I, whenever I come into work, I'm here. As owners, we have meetings every week. We have communication you know, software that we mm-hmm. use to, to keep up with what's going on. Between the three restaurants, we have over 120 employees. Wow. So it's a big operation. It's a big operation. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts in all the restaurants. Um, so each of our, the partners are stationed at different restaurants. My wife, Rachel's the CEO of everyone as she oversees us all and mm. makes sure she's keeping us all in line and handles all the, uh, the bigger issues that don't necessarily pertain to what the guests see at restaurants on a day-to-day. A lot of what the guests see are the food coming to the table and the people who bring them to them and and the drinks and that type, but there's everything that goes on behind the scenes with paying the bills and the taxes and the human resources and countless, countless things that most people don't know. Insurance, I mean, this is, it's a business like any other business. Right. And sometimes even more complicated because we have hundreds of people moving through through our doors the general Daily, public. The general public. They like things to be a certain way. We like things to be a certain way for them. Right. We try to make everybody happy. It doesn't happen every day. Right. We try We try our best. So what I'm, here's a question for you. Was Mamala's, specifically Mamala's, a concept that you and Rachel came up with on your own? Was it a larger group? And how did you, from that small little cafe to that ginormous place, yeah. how did you get here to this so, this concept. So Mamla's was a concept that we had actually, so the evolution was the small coffee shop and then Hungry Mother was the fine dining leading yeah. restaurant. And then the next project was potentially going to be this deli. Space-wise and timing-wise, it didn't work out, so that's when we opened State Park, which uh. is the bar. So we had this concept in mind for a while. I'm Jewish, Ra- my wife Rachel's Jewish, business, our business partner's Jewish, one of them. I realized when we had Hungry Mother, which was a southern restaurant, that a lot of the techniques for making food were similar cross-culturally. So a pickle is essential to Jewish deli food. Of course. But there's also a lot of pickles in southern cooking. There's a lot of smoked meat in southern cooking. It's usually Mm. pork, but uh, there's pastrami. Right. There's curing of fish, there's curing of meat, there's baking bread. A lot of it can cross over. And I thought, well, if we can, we have business partners who are talented chefs that can make any kind of food, let's make it Jewish food. Plus, there was a bit of a resurgence of Jewish jellies coming around. There was a place in New York called Mylan, which are people from Montreal, which opened a Jewish jelly in New York. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, yeah, they opened, they opened years ago, and they were an inspiration. And then every time we went to New York, we would always go to Katz's or Russ and Daughters and go to the classic places. And I saw that in Boston, there were not... There were places that had been around in Boston for a long time that were solid places, but there was none of that new energy. So we mm-hmm. thought we'd bring some of that new energy with the fine dining backgrounds with my Jewish roots and open a place that was casual but with high quality food and service and try to preserve this for another generation. Around the same time, I'd read a book called Save the Deli by an oh, yeah. author called David Sachs, who was from also from Canada, from Toronto. And it was an inspirational book about how Jewish jellies were closing all over the world. So I felt a little bit of 
Tikkun Olam responsibility yeah, yeah. for for bring it to the next generation. Even you know, I felt like I'm 41, and I felt like people my age and up know delis, but a lot of people younger than me didn't. So I wanted to keep that going for more generations, and it's worked. We have little. It's worked in its tiny little fragment way, but we have little kids that come in and they say, oh, they're four-year-old kids that tell their parents they want to go to Mama's, or yeah. they want to go to the place with, we have a pickle, Pickle's the Great mascot, they want to go to the place with a pickle on the wall, and it's really nice to see. We have a lot of kids that come here and they try their first matzo ball because they're little babies and they're just eating solid yeah. food, or they have their first potato locker, or you see little kids eating bites of lox, and it's really nice to see. And I'm guessing that you have a pretty diverse clientele in terms of age, but also some juice, some nuts. Yeah, it's it's just great food. It speaks to the food. It is. And we have a lot of the gateway Jewish food, like bagels and pastrami and corned beef, a lot of people know. But then when they get here, they can have blintzes or noodle kogel or the babkas and rugala, stuff that people are sure to love once they try it. They just have to understand it. Exactly. And I didn't realize it when we opened it that we were opening an ethnic restaurant because it was all the food was so natural to me. And I asked my friend, who is not Jewish, if he would come in here if he didn't know me. And he said, well, I go out for Indian food all the time, and I'm not Indian. So it, it made it clear to me that people would, people would come and, the try, and try something new. Because, Absolutely. You know, every, it's, it's, so we're fortunate to live in a city where there's so many different styles of cuisine and so people from so many different countries. They could try that this was another one on the list. They can try, oh, let's have Jewish food. Yeah, Maybe why not? I haven't tried that before, so... I've noticed, because I watch your site every now and then, that around the holidays, could be Purim, it could be Rosh Hashanah. We all know that there's traditional foods in our own homes, whatever that, those might be. And so I noticed that you add those to the menu, and it's just a short time thing. And so I wonder if you could tell me, in some ways it's like, duh, of course you would do that. But there had to be thought behind that, mm-hmm. in terms of the chefs preparing all this. and so. How did that come about? And maybe just tell me a little bit about what choices you make or let's just start there. Like yeah, how- we realized that food is important around, well, pretty much all the time if you're Jewish, but especially around the Jewish holidays. And that we would be filling that hole if people didn't want to cook at home and wanted to get catering, but wanted to get high quality catering. And when I say catering, we make platters and we bring them, people can pick them up or we can deliver them to people's houses. We don't go and serve people's meals right. at their homes, but we'll provide the food. And we opened in the summer and for the first Yom Kippur, we were debating whether we should close during the day. Mm-hmm. And we knew there was going to be a big business the night before selling dinners before, sure. you know, before Kol Nidre, we could have big, you know, heartier dinners, brisket and lakas and whatnot and then we knew there was going to be a big business for breakfast the next day of lighter food the egg salad white fish salad blintz is more of a dairy meal but what i thought was who's going to come to mama's during the day well we're right in the middle of a there's a lot of offices and schools around us and we have a big lunchtime business so we stayed open i was able to get to services for a few hours which was nice and then i came back we hosted a breakfast here at night and we were packed during the day and so what i realized again with being cross-cultural that our clientele is so diverse that most people that came in didn't even know it was Yom Kippur and didn't care. They worked and they wanted a sandwich and they came in for lunch and and they and they enjoyed it. And then we had a whole another group of people at night who were coming exactly for that reason. Right. And then it went on from there. Hanukkah was next and we sold more lockies than we could imagine. And we've 
we've changed. You know, we see what works from holiday to holiday and year over year. We see what works. And right now we're in the middle of Purim just happened. So we've sold, I don't even know how many hundreds of hamantashen in the past few days. Now we're gearing up for Passover, which is next month. And Passover is our busiest week of the year. Really? Yeah, with people preparing. And we have, you know, we'll keep with our full regular menu. We'll still be making our bagels and everything with flour in it. But in addition, we're going to have every sandwich is available on potato latkes or on matzah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it's a lot of our staff is not Jewish either, so it's, they're learning a lot every holiday. And it's interesting to tell them this holiday for Passover specifically, it's easy because we deal with gluten allergies all the time. So we say, just pretend everybody has a gluten allergy. Right. And it's, an e- it's a good way to think about it. Yeah. So do you feel that, particularly at those times when you're doing this special food items, and you kind of touched on this now, that having that particular food connects people with their Jewish identity. Do you sense any kind of difference amongst your staff or amongst the people who come or for the purpose of the restaurant? How does your food, particularly at holiday times, help people connect with their own Jewish identity? It's definitely during holiday times, but even on a regular basis, we hear people, the mix of clientele, we have people that come in and we'll just have a, be here for a business breakfast or a business lunch and have their meal and go about their day. And then we'll have other people come in who will hug me and tell me that they haven't had this food that tasted like this since their grandparents made it. Oh. Or they haven't had an egg cream like we make since they grew up in the Bronx. And then we get people that say, I remember knishes used to be 35 cents. Why are you charging so much for a knish? Or, you know, comparing us to... New York bagels or Katz's. The first few months we were open, first few weeks we were open, somebody compared us to Katz's, Katz's famous pastrami in New York. They've been open for 125 years. And we've been open for weeks at that point. And I said, come back in 100 years and see us, and you'll see how good our pastrami is going to (laughs) be. And then they realized, okay, I'll I'll give them a chance. But we say, we tell our staff, and we're we're not trying to compete with anybody's grandmother. We're not trying to be better than anybody's uh, memories. You can't just try compete to bring, with that. We can't, and we just try to bring that back a little bit. Noodle Kugel on our menu, it says, does not contain raisins. Because I grew up either not liking raisins or picking the raisins out of my Noodle Kugel. And then you have people complain and say, oh, that's not the way you're supposed to make Noodle Kugel. It's supposed to have raisins. Say, all right, well, that's the way we chose to make it. You know, we're... Jewish people can be a particular bunch around food, and we try to please most of the people. And by the looks of the plates of food here, and speaking for my own plate of food that I experienced, I would say, pretty good job. Thank you. Do you have any other special plans for the future of Mamala's, or your business conglomerate that we should know about? Nothing. We've been really busy for the past number of years between opening a restaurant, closing a restaurant, opening another restaurant, opening another restaurant. My wife and I have two children also, our business partners, our husband and wife, they have two children also. So it's a it's a constant balancing act of keeping everyone sane and yeah. happy and profitable and healthy and mentally and physically. And, you know, we have maybe a project that's happening in the future that I can't quite discuss well, at press we just, time right now. We'll just have to watch your website. But it's, uh, you know, for overall, it's it's important for us to have a good work-life balance. We've actually been open at Mamla's for coming up on three years, and for t- a little over two of those years, we were open for dinner also. We were open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we were open 14 hours a day, seven days a week for two years. 
And I certainly wasn't here all of those hours, but the more hours you're open, the more challenging, sure. you know, the more issues can arise, the more challenging it can be. And, and I felt like I wasn't seeing my children there as much as I wanted to. They're nine and seven right now, Mira and Golda, who at some point will listen to this and be happy to hear their names. But they're at this wonderful age where we want to be together as much as possible. And they're at the age where they're going to remember these years as adults. And so I don't want them to remember me not being there. Yeah. So we made the decision to close for dinner. And I have family dinners at home most nights now. Nice. And hopefully it's the right decision for the business also. But ultimately, the, to me, the family is more important than the restaurant. I'm at a certain age where I may not have said that, you know, previous. Right. But as you get a little older, you realize what's more important in life. And, I mean, the bottom line is if you aren't healthy and happy as a person that will feed into the business. It's the, it's a cycle. Yeah. If you're not happy at work, you're not going to be happy at home. If you have a frustrating day, it's not unique to the restaurant business. If you have a frustrating day at work, you're going to go home and be short with your family. Yeah. And then if you go to and then if you're upset at home, you're going to come in and that, you're going to bring that, and it just turns into this horrible cycle that we're trying to break. It's an emotional roller coaster here at the restaurant with the number of moving parts we have, and we're trying to keep always keep on the on the upside. I can't, maybe this is like asking you if, who's your favorite child? Yeah. And I'm not asking you yeah. that. But I am going to ask you, do you have a favorite item on the menu? Oh, that's, I don't, um, it's hard to say. Hard to say. <laughs> I mean, that's like the dilemma of when you come to eat here for the first time. What am I going to get? And I'm here all the time and I eat the food here all the time. I think I'm particularly fond of the chopped liver because it was my grandmother's recipe. Oh, nice. And my grandmother would make it on Shabbat when we would go over to her house. And she, you know, she would make it with the, the onions and the, the chicken liver. She would saute the liver and the onions. And she would put a little bit of mayonnaise in there to stir it. And I've heard from people that you're not allowed to put mayonnaise in it. And I thought, well, I mean, that's the way my grandmother made it. So that's the way I grew up eating it. And that's what I love. And that's the way we're making it here. She probably made one small container of livers to feed all of us, and now we're going through, we get five-pound containers of livers multiple days a week, and you know it varies from, from batch to batch, and it's one of those polarizing dishes that some people love and some people hate. Right. Um, I'm a fan of those types of dishes, like pickled herring we have here, and that's another polarizing one some people love, some people hate. But the people who do love those dishes really love them and are really happy that we have them. So it, just in closing, I will let my listeners know that, although we don't know it right now, there will be a recipe that uh, Mamalis is going to share, which I will put on the website. And Alan, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was great, great fun chatting with you. Likewise. I love this. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Big Schmear. Our recording and mix engineer in Chicago is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please send your email to beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.